In February 2000, refugee expert and humanitarian aid worker Sasha Chanoff was in the Congo on a mission to evacuate a very specific set of Tutsi refugees who were on a UN resettlement list. But as he was about to leave with those refugees, Chanoff was invited into a tent. And what he saw in that tent would shake the foundation of his life, soul, and career. I remember that it was really hot in there and it was silent which was so strange because there were 32 uh, widows and orphans in the tent. And the guy who had brought us in whispered to us that they had been put in a prison camp. Many of their family members had, uh, had lost their lives there. He doesn't know how they survived, but if we don't take them out now, they might not make it. The people looked very skinny and had these hollow stares. Sheka leaned over to a little girl who is holding a doll and said, what's your doll's name? And all of a sudden the doll's eyes opened and we realized that it was this tiny infant that didn't weigh more than about four pounds and, and um, didn't look like it would survive much longer. Hello everyone, this is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. That crucible moment, as Chanoff calls his experience in that tent, prompted him to launch Refuge Point, whose mission is to address the critical and unmet needs of those who fall through the cracks of humanitarian assistance and have no other options for survival. Refuge Point has a special focus on women, children, and urban refugees. Chanoff is the co-author of the leadership book, From Crisis to Calling, Finding Your Moral Center in the Toughest Decisions, a book that he wrote with his father, David Chanoff. Chanoff has won many awards and accolades for his extraordinary contributions to addressing the global refugee crisis. I'm delighted to welcome today Sasha Chanoff, CEO and founder of Refuge Point. Sasha, welcome to When It Mattered. <laughs> that was such a generous introduction. Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Tell us about that trip to Congo, what your mission was, who invited you to enter that tent, and why you strayed from your original instructions from your boss, which were very, very specific. I was working in Nairobi at the time with the International Organization for Migration. This is a UN agency now. And my boss, David, called me into his office and handed me a list with 112 names on it. And he said he was sending me into the Congo on the last evacuation mission to evacuate Tutsis who were being attacked and imprisoned and massacred there. This had come about because the president of the Congo at the time, Kabila, had said that all Tutsis are the enemy and need to be hunted down and imprisoned and exterminated. And that proclamation sparked countrywide massacres. The U.S. government, I think in part out of guilt over not having acted uh, during the Rwandan genocide, hired our organization, the International Organization for Migration, to send small teams into the Congo to evacuate survivors of massacres there. My boss, David, was an architect of that operation. And so he went in many times with colleagues. And on his last mission in, the Congolese government held back 112 people. So he came out. Uh, without those people who were stuck there in a very desperate situation. And the U.S. put pressure on the Congolese government that then said, we can come in and get those people. David handed me this list with 112 names on it, and he said that the goal was to get those 112 people out. You know, I was like a, a kid. I had graduated from college a few years earlier and really had no experience in this sort of thing. But David said, don't worry, he's sending a senior operations official in with me. Her name was Sheikha Ali, and she had been with David on all previous evacuations. And David said, 
said, just get those people out and I, I think you can do it. But no matter what you do, don't take anybody who's not on this list. If you try to do so, the Congolese government will put their own people on the flight, not let your people get on and you won't get anybody out. And he said, also, Sheikha knows what she's doing, but sometimes she tries to take additional people. And if she does, you have to stop her. Good warning, right? <laughs> right, good. <laughs> Very good. prescient. Yeah, um, he knew Sheikha had both a heart of gold and was also just um, really thoughtful and intelligent ar around the way that she approached th these missions and humanitarianism broadly. In any case, Sheikha and I flew into the Congo. Uh, we went to that safe haven, which was about an hour outside Congo's capital. It was a compound with 10-foot walls, about a two-acre compound with jagged shards of glass on top of the walls and guards outside. The people who were inside, Tutsis, if they had left that compound, they were being attacked in the streets. And were you afraid to go? You were young and you were inexperienced. Were you afraid when you saw all of that? Um, yeah, Congo was uh, at war at this time. We had to hire armed guards to get from the compound to the, to the airport. And one previous evacuation, a bus had broken down and an angry mob had gathered around David and Sheikha and others there, and they just managed to get out and get people to the airport. Uh, I had spent uh, the months earlier with many of the evacuees who had been evacuated to neighboring countries and were waiting to resettle to the US. And so I knew many of their family members who were still stuck in there in the Congo and were on our list. So I had those people in mind as I went in there. So I, I don't, so yes, it was a dangerous situation, but, but I wasn't being attacked there. With armed guards, we thought that we would be okay, but the people that we were going in to get, if they were seen in the streets, they were being killed. So it was incredibly nerve-wracking, and, and certainly we were like expecting there could be some ambush or something, but, um, but I was terrified for the people who were in there and, and incredibly excited that we had a chance to try to go and get those people out so we could reunite them with family members. So what, what happened next? Well, so we get into the compound and people see Sheikha and they start cheering because they know there's going to be another evacuation. And we register the 112 people on our list. And as we're trying to leave, a guy who's working in the compound says to us, there's a tent over there and you have to go into that tent and see the people who just came in. And I immediately said, nope, I'm sorry, our list is closed, our charter flight is full, there's no way we can take other people, we can't even look at them, we're leaving. And Sheikha looked at me and said, Sasha, um, I'll just go and take a look in that tent. And she walked toward the tent, and before I knew what was happening, my feet were following her into the tent. And we stepped inside that tent, and it felt like time stopped for a moment, or really slowed down. I remember that it was really hot in there, and it was silent which was so strange because there were 32 uh, widows and orphans in the tent. And the guy who had brought us in whispered to us that they had been put in a prison camp. Many of their family members had, uh, had lost their lives there. He doesn't know how they survived, but if we don't take them out now, they might not make it. The people looked very skinny and had these hollow stares. Sheikha leaned over to a little girl who is holding a doll and said, what's your doll's name? And all of a sudden the doll's eyes opened and we realized that it was this tiny infant that 
didn't weigh more than about four pounds and and um, didn't look like it would survive much longer. How did that feel that moment? It was totally shocking. Um, I had been working for the past few years in the US with refugees since graduating from college. I had always wanted to understand in deeper and deeper ways what the lives of refugees were like, what their experiences were like. That led me to working with the UN in Africa. But now I wasn't outside of an experience anymore. I was directly in it with people who were in immense peril and needed support. So it was like I was right on the inside of a situ of this situation with them there. And, and I'd never been, of course, in any kind of situation like that at all. I just remember feeling shocked and horrified and like we, we had to do something about it. And I guess just that, that, that little baby, right? I mean, if that had been a doll, I don't know if your reaction would have been a little bit different. Would it have been a little less shocking to your soul to see a little what looked like a baby doll open open its eyes and it was a baby? Maybe, Chitra, you know, other things happened in that tent too. Uh, one, we asked one boy, what's your name? And another younger boy standing behind him stepped up and said, he doesn't talk anymore. I can speak for him. So we, we just saw and felt um, and understood that these were people who had gone through the most extreme circumstances that that I could never imagine and and were still in a situation where they needed to um, to get out of there. But you were in a very difficult spot, right? Because you were told, bring back the 112. You can't bring anybody else back. So what happened next? Well, exactly. And David's words were ringing in my ears stick to the list and you'll succeed. If you try to take additional people, you will fail to get anybody out. And remember, I had met many of the family members of the people who were on our list. So Sheikha and I went back to a hotel that we had, um, was kind of our headquarters, and we started arguing that night. And she essentially said, Sasha, we have to try to take these people. And I said, I know, I saw them too. I, 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 I feel we should, but we can't. We can't go against our orders and we have to get the people out who are on our list. We can't take them. And I could see her getting really visibly upset. And, um, and so we argued about it for hours. And, and she finally, you know, as we were arguing, again, I thought like, who am I? Uh, what is my background here? I, I, my, my great grandmother came to the U.S. as a refugee a hundred years ago. She had, was a widow who had to raise her four kids on her own without support, and so, Sheikha finally said, "Sasha, are we or are we not humanitarians?" And through all the things she said and that kind of emphasis on that point, I thought. I trust her, and if she feels we can do this, I do too. And I said, you're right, let's try to take them out. But that was easier said than done, right? Right, so I, so I, Sheikha, I think, had a kind of uh, big plans and she knew what she wanted to do, and she finally convinced me and, and gained m my trust, and I thought, okay. I, I mean, she was a very senior operations official too, and I didn't know what I was doing, but I had been told what to do. So when I said, okay, let's do that, she then said, okay, you call our boss and tell him what we're doing. And so I called David 
and he got very upset. He he said, you can't do this. You can't take additional people. If you try, you know what will happen. I already explained it to you. The Congolese government will not let you take anybody out. And I said, I know, but Sheikha and I have decided that we have to try to do this. We were the ones who saw those people. We were the ones who were in that tent. We have to do this. So David was quiet for a moment, and then he said, okay, if you are going to do this, get the U.S. ambassador's approval. This is a U.S. mission, and if the ambassador approves, then try it. So Sheikha, again, uh, had all the connections. She had worked with the U.S. ambassador and U.S. embassy on previous missions. So we got their approval, and we had to do a lot of other things. But on the last morning, we went into the compound. We had four buses. We had four armed guards per bus. We got everybody into the buses and we drove an hour to the airport. We stopped 50 feet from the plane and we got down off the bus and then the group tried to start getting off the first bus and Congolese immigration officials stopped them. And I looked around, I felt terrified. I thought we made the wrong decision and no one's going to get out here. And if they don't get out here, we know what will happen to them. And I looked around and, and I didn't really understand why they were stopping them. We had already told the Congolese immigration officials that we wanted to do this. Um, Sheikha went over and, and, and said something to the head of Congolese immigration. And seconds ticked by. It felt like minutes or hours. But finally, they let us off the bus and onto the plane. And we all boarded that plane and we flew out of there. And those people went to a neighboring country. We brought them to Cameroon. And from there, they were interviewed and all resettled to the U.S. and have rebuilt their lives here now. That was 22 years ago. And I've, I've been in touch and spent time with many of them since they arrived here. And that uh, infant that was four pounds is now a college graduate. And all these people have rebuilt their lives in the U.S. and gone on to have families and become citizens and go to college and 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 contribute to their communities and become uh, important parts of uh, America. And they've become American citizens. That's that's incredible that 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 little child is now that little baby is now <laughs> a college grad. And uh, do you know whatever happened to that boy who never spoke? Yeah, he went on to college too, and he became a runner and became a national running champion in college, and then went on to pursue a master's in psychology and to do um, public speaking and motivational speaking as well. It's extraordinary. You have probably dealt with thousands, tens of thousands of refugees, and it's, it's a, an extraordinary testament to you, Sasha, that you have stayed in touch with people like that little tiny baby and that young man who couldn't speak anymore because of the trauma and that you are able to speak with such ease about where they are in their lives. I think that's extraordinary. Mm. Well, you know, I, I am a very fortunate, privileged person to have been in that position to do that. And again, I was a kid who didn't really know what he was doing back then. And I had the mentorship and guidance and vision of this really inspiring woman, Sheikha Ali, who's actually now a board member of Refuge Point, the organization that I started um, sometime after that. She sounds extraordinary. She really does. <laughs> Very strong woman. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, there's some people that you, they just have this clarity around what's right and what's wrong and what needs to be done. And she's always brought that clarity with her to her humanitarian work. She's been with the International Organization for Migration for many years now. And, and it gave you a sense of clarity that led to your book. Tell me about what you learned from that moment and how that led to your book that you wrote with your dad, which is awesome, by the way, that you could write a book with your dad. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, you know, I don't think I could write a book on my own. I'm I'm fortunate because I have a dad who is an academic and uh, then turned into a professional ghostwriter who writes books with people. He's written almost 30 books, some of them really successful. And so um, he and I collaborated on this book and the story. I was in touch with him during the Congo evacuation mission too. You know, my mom is actually from Finland. Uh, and my dad is uh, American, and and I grew up speaking Finnish and English. But during that mission, they had the Congolese um, government, I think, had bugged our room, and they were and they may have been monitoring our phones and our emails, and it was it was just again, an extraordinarily complex situation. I wanted to tell my parents that I was okay. And so I wrote them messages in Finnish, um, <laughs> telling them like, things are okay, you know, everything's fine. I should be flying out of here in a few days. But I figured that even if they were monitoring our email, they probably wouldn't be able to read Finnish. Yeah, good thing your parents taught you another language. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But so what that experience did was it, it opened my eyes to um, to just people who were overlooked and forgotten. And I found that wherever I went, I was, again, working across the African continent in different refugee set settings um, and in urban areas in the U.S. government and other governments' resettlement programs. And I was, after that, really tuned into the people who were overlooked and forgotten. Just for example, when I was working in Kakuma refugee camp in the year 2000 and 2001 with a group that's become really well-known called the Sudanese Lost Boys and Girls. Uh, this was this group of children who'd been separated from their parents or orphaned and had fled the... Uh, horrific violence in South Sudan and had ended up in a refugee camp in Kenya. And the U.S. was bringing about 3,600 of them to our country through its resettlement program. When I was there working with them, I found that there were many girls who, who shared the same exact story as the boys, yet they weren't on the resettlement lists because they were hidden in the community and for a variety of reasons. So that's just one example of the fact that kind of there were a lot of people out there who were overlooked and forgotten. And the U.S. government has this robust resettlement program that's always been a bipartisan program that brings in, on average, 75,000 or so refugees a year. And every year, tens of thousands of those slots were going unused. So here was a situation where there were many refugees falling through the cracks of assistance who needed resettlement as a life-saving solution. Tens of thousands of slots were going unused. And so I thought that seeing that and and having worked with the US and other governments in resettlement i thought that i could create an agency that would address that gap that would identify people help them resettle but also help to uh, fix a, a dysfunctional or broken system but back to your question sorry i i went on a bit of a tangent there you said what did what did i learn from that um 
my dad and I talked about writing a book for some time, and it turned into a leadership book using that story as a, a, an example of actually what a lot of people might face, not necessarily that specific experience, but a lot of people, leaders and others go through experiences that that may transform them or shape them or make them think in a different way where they may face hard or difficult decisions and not know what to do and so we started talking to other leaders and the book essentially uses the congo evacuation story as the grounding to share this experience but also pull out lessons from that experience and also interview other leaders and talk about their crucible moments or crucible experiences and we saw that the lessons in in my story were similar to lessons in other people's stories and three of those lessons are the following one is to open your eyes and what i mean by that is opening your eyes to the challenges around you for me opening my eyes was stepping into that tent which again i never would have done if Sheikha hadn't been there but that actually made me see and confront a situation that otherwise i wouldn't have been aware of and the second lesson is to know yourself what are your own values, your own experiences, your own education, and your own moral orientation telling you what you need to do. Again, in my situation, I was so fortunate to have somebody who was confronting me and arguing with me and helping me think through this in a deeper way than just saying no. But during that argument with Sheikha, again, I thought about who I was and what I wanted to be in the world. And then the third lesson is to take courage and that's simply that hard decisions there might not be an easy or a simple or a, a direct right or wrong answer but when you've determined what you feel is the appropriate thing to do then it might take courage to do that again in in my situation i was fortunate to have this incredible woman who was so much senior to me and had experience and i trusted her and was able to do that but what i found in writing that book and in talking to other leaders that that many had similar crucible experiences and when they tuned into their own values and who they were they they had a sense of what they needed to do and what decisions they had to make and often what happens in those situations is that that can open Open up new dimensions in your life, new understanding of what of who you are, what you should dedicate yourself to, and what you should do with your life. And in your case, that was a refuge point, right? It just gave you this whole new look at the uh, the entire humanitarian response and refugee uh, um, approach globally, and to see that gap and to be able to try to do what you can to fix it. Yeah, and here, here's the interesting thing, or one of the interesting things about that. You're right, absolutely. I saw this gap um, and, and thought that I could build an organization that would identify people in the most life-threatening circumstances and help them resettle to countries where they can rebuild their lives. That was some time ago now, and our organization 
is operates across the African continent, the Middle East, and in other places around the world, identifying those people who might not otherwise survive and helping them resettle and get to countries where they can rebuild their lives. Along the way, we've emphasized family reunion and have a special program to identify unaccompanied children and help them reunite with their parents or other family members who are in countries where we can bring them to safely. And, and we've built a number of programs around these ideas of getting refugees into situations where they can rebuild their lives with dignity and, 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 and move forward where they can support themselves and contribute to their communities. And so that's what Refuge Point has done. We have now, as I said, staff working in dozens of countries around the world. We train other organizations to do this work as well. And our whole approach is actually to help change and improve systems by creating programs that reach refugees directly and then by demonstrating and testing that those programs work, and then by training other organizations to also promote and, and pick up those programs so that we can actually reach people far beyond the scope of our direct vision and our, um, and our direct impact. So Refuge Point, as, as you mentioned, has gotten a lot of recognition for that because of our orientation around reaching people directly, um, protecting lives, but also changing systems. Now, one of the things you mentioned the other day when we were speaking is that the whole idea of humanitarian response has the goal of eventually sending people back home, but you have some very startling numbers and trends that actually show otherwise. You know, what happens when people lose their homes, their countries, and have to, you know, leave and flee, flee borders? Yeah, there are really shocking statistics that people may not know about, but today with the forced displacement and Russia's aggression against Ukraine, the world has topped 100 million people who have fled their homes. Among those, about 30 million have fled to a neighboring country and are considered refugees. And I, what everybody wants to do is go home once they fled. That's the first thing in their mind. But the fact is that people don't go home for an average of 20 or more years today. So once you fled your home, you might be stuck in a neighboring country indefinitely. In Dadaab refugee camp in Kenya, there are over 20,000 children whose grandparents arrived there from Somalia uh, in, in the early 1990s. So there's like generations being born into and living out their lives in refugee settings, in refugee camps. And it's just unconscionable. I mean, the, the, the fact is that the whole humanitarian response system is predicated on the idea that people will go home. What that means is that emergency aid and approximately $30 billion a year is given out largely toward emergency aid to provide tents and foods and basic services to help pe keep people alive. That's essential at the outset of a crisis. But if that happens year after year after year, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years go by, what you find is that people get shackled into lives of dependence without opportunities to support themselves, contribute to their communities, or move forward in productive and meaningful ways. And the consequences are vast. This is like one of the greatest um, uh, wastes of human potential that you could ever imagine. You also see that many people risk their lives in the arms of traffickers. 
uh, over 20,000 people have lost their lives in the central Mediterranean, often with traffickers trying to get to Europe. Uh, the And there are many situations where people just put themselves in the most desperate and dangerous circumstances as refugees because they're just trying to get to some place where they can build a normal life and live with dignity. And so we have to change humanitarian response in a couple of ways. One is that for those people who can't stay safely in the countries to which they fled, those that I've mentioned, resettlement is really the only option. This is, again, for people who need to reunite with families, unaccompanied children, people from LGBT communities who are being persecuted, and others who may be in severe and perilous circumstances, even in the country to which they fled. But the vast majority are stuck in those neighboring countries. And so for those people, we have to find a way to transition from emergency aid to a paradigm that enables self-reliance. And there's actually a lot of opportunity, I think unique opportunity today, to promote self-reliance opportunities for refugees. Um, Refuge Point actually does two things. Our broad goal is to find solutions for refugees and to enable people to get into situations where they can thrive and live in dignity. We do that by helping people to resettle, but we have a corollary program that helps people to become self-reliant in Nairobi, which is our kind of flagship program. We work very closely with refugees. Refugees themselves have actually helped us to build this program. We see this as a partnership with them so that we can elevate their leadership. But the goal is to get people into places where they can support themselves and to provide uh, distinct services on a path to enabling people to support themselves. And we've seen a lot of success with that. So much success, in fact, that we have, along with partners, created a big initiative that's global now called the Refugee Self-Reliance Initiative, which is reaching now hundreds of thousands of refugees in through 40 partners in 20 countries around the world that is putting people on a path to self-reliance so that they don't have to depend on erratic aid. And so the big vision is to really think about how to change and transform the humanitarian response paradigm so that people have pathways where they can contribute to their communities, support themselves, live lives of dignity. And what we see is that it, it just it supports the countries to which refugees have fled. And, and it also, when refugees come to the US or to other countries like Canada or Australia or EU countries, you see the immense contributions that they make in these places. You know, you said a few things, uh, and you mentioned Ukraine, and there, all of what you said has such implications for all of those women and children fleeing Ukraine while their men stay behind to fight. And, uh, you know, you were seeing entire population centers, cities brought to dust. And what were your thoughts when you started to first see this unfold and the long-term implications for this tragedy, especially for women and children and young displaced girls too, it just feels like a very dangerous security situation all around for these these poor people that have fled their country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's unconscionable, unspeakable, and the most devastating thing you can witness. Of course, it's happening in other places in the world as well. But in terms of Ukraine, there's some specific and really important points to make. One is that most of the people who have fled, as you pointed out, are women and children, while husbands and fathers are staying home to fight in Ukraine. 
So the EU has opened its arms in the most generous and extraordinary way to Ukrainians fleeing into Poland and into other countries. And that is critical and important. It's actually an example of what the world can do and what countries can do when they put their mind to it. But one of the things that we have to keep in mind, and I actually wrote an op-ed about this, is the importance of family reunion. I mentioned that that was one of the areas of expertise and of focus for Refuge Point, that we have a whole program to uh, reunite unaccompanied children with their parents. And a lot of this work takes place from North Africa and the Middle East to EU countries, where there are unaccompanied children in North Africa and the Middle East, their parents or surviving family members are in EU countries, and we're working to reunite them. We lead this program with the UN Refugee Agency and with another organization called the International Refugee Assistance Project. And what we found is that while parents in EU countries can send visas for their children, and it's a, it's a fundamental human right for children to be with their parents, and family reunion is a right, that it is not easy to actualize, and there are a lot of barriers in it. So right now, Ukrainians can actually reunite. If a father left Ukraine and wanted to get to his wife and child in Paris or in France, he could do that very easily. But next year or the year after, policies may change. And so as countries receive Ukrainians, and I'll also highlight that the U.S. is building a program to receive Ukrainians, Canada has opened its doors wide, as well as the U.K., all these and other countries have to ensure that family reunion is a bedrock principle and opportunity so that Ukrainians can reunite when they need to. That's that's a essential point. Another one is that as you look at the vast numbers of people fleeing to neighboring countries, we are very quickly going to have to transition to self-reliance opportunities in whatever ways are possible. And self-reliance, people often think, well, that means getting a job, right? But what we found through a, a lot of work in our program in Nairobi is that there are a whole set of factors that go into enabling a family um, to support itself. And they're intertwined together. It's not just getting a job and earning an income. It's that your children have to be in school. It's that you have to have access to health. It's a variety of factors that are intertwined. And if one of those factors falls away, the others might not be achievable. If your child is stuck at home, you might not be able to go to work. If you're sick, you might not be able to earn an income. And so what we found is we have this holistic approach that addresses this multifaceted and complex dimensions of what families need to support themselves. We're also kind of building an evidence base of what works by using a tool that was created by the community that we brought together called the Self-Reliance Index to measure impact of programming that's supporting refugees to become self-reliant. And so I think when we think about Poland and other countries, we're very quickly going to have to turn our thoughts to how can people live there and try to be productive there and not just receive handouts. And that's something, again, that we need to turn our attention to after people's lives are stabilized. And, you know, you, you've been doing this for decades now. And I mean, how do you and your colleagues do it? It's just, it just, you know, as you noted, it's not just Ukraine, right? Everywhere in the world, there's bloody conflict, there's genocide, armed uprisings. I mean, it's insane the, the amount of stuff that's going on. I mean, how, a how do you carry on, and and you know, kind of, I'm curious how you came to this career in the first place. It's a difficult job. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, a couple of things just about the the kind of growing and vast dimensions of forced displacement. And of course, you're right, it's Ukraine, it's Afghanistan, it's uh, Rohingya fleeing Myanmar, it's Congo, it's Somalia, it's South Sudan, it's Yazidis in Iraq, it's on and on and on, it's Syria. And so there is more forced displacement. And I think the latest crisis displaces the last one in terms of the headlines in the media. But the people who fled from Somalia 30 years ago are still, many of them are still refugees as we talked about. So a, a, a few just principles or thoughts around that first. One is that I firmly believe that we won't make any progress unless we think about how to build effective coalitions and work in a united way. And that means working closely with refugees, elevating their voices so they are leading the efforts that impact their own lives. It means bringing governments and NGOs and thought leaders together to collectively focus on outcomes. And that's something that I believe very firmly in. Another thing is that everybody, in my opinion, I just see a lot of competition for resources. And I have always approached building refuge point from the perspective that if others are doing important work, I want to support them. And so I find myself every day supporting other leaders, talking to other leaders, introducing them to funders that I have. And, 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 and that comes from a place of recognizing that if we are first and foremost for refugees, then we should also be for all those effective organizations that are helping refugees and not just for our own organization. And I think that orientation of collaboration rather than competition is really important. Um, and then you asked, how do you manage this? And it makes me think of one of our really extraordinary staff who's a leader in child protection. And she went to Iraq to work with Yazidi children who had been captured by ISIS and then escaped and needed to reunite with family members in Canada and other countries. And our staff were on the front lines interviewing those children and working to help them reunite with their uh, surviving family members. And I asked our staff person who shared some of the experiences that she had um, working with these very traumatized children, how she sleeps at night and how she manages because just the secondary trauma of hearing people's stories or interacting with them is it can be significant. We have a whole mental health approach to our work too, um, providing support both to our staff, but also doing training with all of our staff around how to work with people in a way so that we don't don't re-traumatize them. Um, and so this woman said, you know, I watch movies, I try to laugh, I try to take my mind off it. But I find that many people who get involved in this work um, really find a calling in it, just as I have and that you feel like you have the ability to play some small role in in helping somebody who's in a very desperate circumstance better or improve her life and we, each of us faces desperate and awful times in our lives where we need others and for refuge point we're often meeting those that we serve refugees at the most perilous or dangerous moment in their lives, and our intervention can help them get to a better place, help them build a new life, help put them on a path to normalcy. And so I think that just for me personally is endlessly inspiring as I 
um, meet people and see people rebuild their lives and see what they accomplish. And I think it really undergirds our organization. But I've also seen that all the people who've come around, our board and others who collectively work to advance our goals, all feel kind of this similar sense of inspiration around doing this work. And and you took a calling to this right from college. What was it that drew you to it? Well, I started volunteering in Boston with the Jewish Vocational Service and the International Rescue Committee and then got a job as a job developer. But I remember some of the first Somalis and Bosnians in the mid-90s coming into my office and meeting them and hearing some of their stories. And I had this really visceral sense that if I could just play a small role in helping people who had been separated from family often, lost their homes, and gone through the things they'd gone through, rebuild their lives, there was nothing more important that I could do with my life. And when I thought about it, I think that that may have come from the fact that my own family four generations ago now, you know, my great grandparents were refugees fleeing anti-Semitism in Russia and came to the US with nothing and, and built their lives from scratch here. Sasha, looking back at your younger self, that young, inexperienced refugee coordinator looking into that tent and seeing his world dissolve and arguing with his colleague about what to do next and all of the things you've seen, all of those refugees you've helped, what would you say to that younger self, your younger self, about the journey that you've been on um, as you've attempted to bring light and hope to millions of refugees worldwide? I would say a few things. First of all, lift your eyes up and look at what's happening around you, not just at the people in those tents, but what could you do even more broadly than that? Lift your eyes up and recognize that the people that you are here to serve have so much more experience than you. The, the refugees themselves who were there, some of them were lawyers, they were doctors, they, they were teachers, they were farmers. Turn to them and ask them what they think should be done. I think one of the really tragic things about humanitarian response today is that it's, it is a top-down approach, which I think is changing. But what I mean by that is it's large organizations that are implementing programs often without the benefit or input of the people that you're aiming to serve. And we're, we're taking a different approach. We, we are elevating the voices the, the needs and the concerns of refugees so that they're actually helping us to guide our programs. Our board now is made up of many people who have lived experience as well. But I would say to that younger self, turn to some of the people there and ask them for advice and input too. I, f I feel like at, at that point, I, I, yeah, again, I was like just a kid. I didn't really know what I was doing. Thankfully, I had this incredible senior operations officer who was with me there. But look around, open your eyes to the things that are happening around you. Are there other things that we could do there to help more people than just those on our list? Sasha, thank you so much for joining me on When It Mattered and for this fascinating conversation. Yeah, Chitra, it's such a it's such a pleasure. You know, I, I I will say just in closing too that I feel like we are at monumental, unique point in history where more people are forcibly displaced than ever before, 
and climate change is going to exacerbate forced displacement. I've seen some predictions or some modeling that that indicates that there could be up to a billion people who are displaced by 2050. So issues of refugees and forced displacement are no longer fringe issues. They impact every one of us and will continue to do so. And that means that we all have to open our eyes to these situations to think about what we can do in, in, in these matters to make a difference for others. And when we do that, when we take the initiative to support others, you find that it dramatically enriches, improves, and can change your own life for the better. And what I've seen is that People who are doing this across the country feel like they are contributing both to themselves and to our country in such positive ways. Well, all indications are that the world could get a lot worse before it gets better. So I think the world is uh, very lucky to have people like you, Sasha, and those around you and those who work with you on these incredibly complex and difficult and tragic problems. Well, thank you so much. It's it's just such a pleasure to talk to you about this, and I hope we can reach a, a wide audience with these messages. Sasha Chanoff is the CEO and founder of Refuge Point, whose mission is to address the critical and unmet needs of those who fall through the cracks in humanitarian assistance and have no other options for survival. Refuge Point has a special focus on women, children, and urban refugees. Chanoff is the co-author of the book, From Crisis to Calling, finding your moral center in the toughest decisions. An Ashoka Fellow, Chanoff has won many awards and accolades for his extraordinary contributions to addressing the global refugee and displacement crisis. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. When It Mattered is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.